Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to start our time off this morning to the west of Vietnam and to the east of Thailand in Asia in a country called Laos. It's in Laos where I want us to consider submission, submission from the life of a 20-year-old woman named Bufa. At age 15, Bufa was saved in Laos. She submitted to the Lordship of Christ as he called her into his kingdom at that age. Submission to Christ and to the leadership of her local church led her to service in the children's ministry. She loved serving the kids and desired that they would grow, as she said, to follow God's way. That's what she wanted to teach them. She was teaching them in February of 2020, just before COVID changed the whole world. Bufa's faith in Christ was put to the test when her Sunday schoolroom was interrupted by the police. Everyone was shocked and afraid as three officers came in menacingly and began asking questions. They asked her, did you know that teaching these little kids here is against the law? She prayed to God while she submitted to them, responding and answering the police officers' questions politely. And when they took her to the local police station for questioning, she did not resist, but she submitted. The officers questioned Bufa about her Christian beliefs, and she submitted, gladly sharing to them the gospel. Their questions continued, and one officer forcefully asked her, how do you know that the God you believe in is the one who created everything? Over the top, despite and even through her fears, Bufa submitted, answering all of their questions, even encouraging the officers to read and study the materials that they had confiscated from her and her classroom. Submission led to the gospel being presented to these officers in Laos. Submission led to the glory of God. Submission led to the strengthening of Bufa's faith. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, what is the value of submission? How much wisdom is found in submission? I'm reminded of the seminary student who showed up on campus, and he didn't look like everybody else. He had a long ponytail, and he was brought into the dean's office, and the dean asked him to participate in submission. Submission in the form of not being a distraction. Submission in cutting off the ponytail. See if he was obedient to Christ in submission. Now, I'm not asking you all to wear neckties next week, but it's interesting, isn't it? Submission. Are you willing to submit? Are you willing to defer for others? To whom must we submit? When and why must we submit? Is submission ever absolute? If it is absolute, to whom is it absolute? Submission has been the headline topic in the church for the past two years. To whom shall the church submit? To Christ or to the government? Is that a one-time thing? Is that all the time? When do those boundary lines cross? How do we need to know whether or not to submit and not to submit and when? Do we trust God's sovereignty in submission? That's a big question. And how is submission part of God's eternal plan to glorify himself? Well, this morning, brothers and sisters, we must consider submission as part of our conversation about walking wisely in Ephesians 5 and our obligation as members in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in Ephesians 5 now where Paul has given us his fifth and final walking command in chapter 5 verse 15 telling us to walk wisely. This is the fifth 
walking command, the first comes in chapter 4, verse 1, where we are told to walk worthy of the calling into which we've been called. In chapter 4, verse 17, he tells us to walk no longer in our old, wicked, Gentile ways. In chapter 5, verse 1, we're told to be imitators of God and to walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. Chapter 5, verse 8, it's a beautiful passage. He talks about, he calls us into walking as children of light, telling us that you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, and you are to walk then as children of the light. And it makes sense then perfectly to follow that up with walk wisely. Walk as if you actually have received the wisdom of God, being filled by the Spirit of God, even being given the mind of Christ through the Spirit. And I would ask that you please, please never forget that Paul can speak to us so demandingly in the text. And I really do hope that you understand he is making demands of you. This is a demanding text. And he can do this because Paul knows salvation. He knows salvation. How much does Paul know salvation? Well, he knows it explicitly, and he teaches it to us in chapters 1 and 2. Even chapter 3 speaks of the mystery in Christ. But in chapters 1 and 2 specifically, Paul tells us about salvation. In chapter 1, he tells us about salvation from the top down. Chapter 1 is God's view of salvation. Chapter 2 is salvation from the bottom up. It is man's view of salvation, which starts out, and you were dead. This is not an accept Jesus into your heart salvation that is popular among Christians today that Paul presents in Ephesians 1 and 2. Paul's understanding of salvation has nothing to do at all with your choice or your free will and everything to do with what? God's choice and God's free will to captivate you and to transform you by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. After all, can we just consider the context of Ephesians in the sense of who wrote the book? Paul did. What did Paul's salvation look like? Well, Paul was marching on the road to Damascus to make himself a Christian and accept Jesus into his heart. That's not the case at all, brothers and sisters. Paul was killing Christians when Jesus arrested his heart, stopped him from doing his evil, and saved him. Paul knows salvation, and he also knows sanctification. In Ephesians, he speaks to us for three chapters, telling us of our calling that we have in Christ, and then telling us how we need to conduct ourselves as believers in Christ. He tells us in chapters 1 through 3 all we need to believe, and in chapters 4 through 6 all we need to know to behave. He tells you, brothers and sisters, of your riches in Christ in chapters 1 to 3 so that you will perform the responsibilities you have as children of light in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so he demands that we walk wisely. And what does this require? Well, the answer is there in chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Walking wisely requires that you examine your life that you redeem your time on this sin-sick earth and that you realize the Lord's will and that you are to be filled with the Spirit. If you know the Lord's will and you are filled with the Spirit, you will redeem relationships. Wise walking is redeeming relationships. In, chapters, in chapter 5, verses 18 through, and all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul drives the path of wisdom through the land of ten relationships. That's the way I like to describe this, a picture of a journey. The path of wisdom goes through the land of ten relationships. And Paul gives us ten relationship redemption strategies for honoring the Lord's will and glorifying our Father in heaven. Now, we've looked at these relationships, verses 18 through 20, the first four of these ten relationships already, which focus on our eternal relationships, relationships that we have with the Holy Spirit, 
relationships with fellow believers, with our Lord Jesus Christ and with our Father who is in heaven. The passage here is extremely Trinitarian, as is Paul's whole letter. We serve a three-person God. In chapter 5, verse 21, Paul is going to move on to our earthbound relationships, that of husband and wife, child and parent, slave and master. And these are the focus of the following verses, but not without giving us the engine oil required to lubricate these combustible relationships. What must all of us hear and obey if we are to have relationship redemption that honors God? You need to hear these words, submit to one another. Our good and God's glory are found in submission. Submission to Christ, to the Bible, to church government, to local and state and national governments as well. And for our text today, God's glory is found in our submission to one another in the church. Let's read the text together and observe the wise are those who walk in submission to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and following, he says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. In chapter 6, verse 1, we're told children are told to obey their parents. In verse 4, fathers are to raise their children wisely. Verse 5, slaves are, are to be obedient to their masters. And verse 9, of chapter 6, masters must render good service to their slaves. Brothers and sisters, we are on the path of wisdom. We are journeying through the land of ten relationships, and it seems that we've come to a bridge in chapter 5, verse 21, the bridge called submission. If our eternal relationships are fully redeemed and we are walking spirit-filled in this life, we find redemption of all our relationships by crossing over the bridge of submission. Submission is essential for life in the church, and it should be obvious to us that if submission is righteous and beneficial and obligated for God's glory and our good in the church, then submission too is profitable in all other human relationships as well. And it is here in the text that Paul presents the bridge of submission in the land of relationship redemption. With our time, we must explore three aspects 
of submission required for earthbound relationship redemption. We must consider three characteristics of submission that bridge eternal and earthbound relationships. What aspects of submission build the bridge for earthbound relational redemption? What three aspects? The first, the eternal expectation of submission. Number one in your notes today, the eternal expectation of submission. The second aspect of submission that we need to consider is the present application of submission. And the third aspect of submission we need to look at is the timeless motivation for submission. These three aspects of submission will serve as your outline for this morning. The eternal expectation of submission, the present application of submission, and the timeless motivation for submission. Paul's desire and the Lord's desire in the text is our growth in knowing and doing biblical submission for the glory of God in the church and in all our earthbound relationships. So then let's look at point number one in your notes as we come to the first of three aspects of submission. The first in your notes is the eternal expectation of submission. We see here in the text, submission is commanded. Let's take a look at this. Where do we see the eternal expectation of submission in the text being commanded? Well, in chapter 5, verse 21, we see Paul commands submission, saying in verse 21, and be subject, be submitting, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. The elect standard version, that's the ESV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The English Standard Version, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. To submit or to be subject is the Greek word hupotasso. You don't have to tell that to me later. I just make sure that I know it's in my notes. Hupotasso, which was originally a military term, meaning to arrange, to order, to rank under another. Or you could say, to place under in an orderly fashion in a military sense. Our God, brothers and sisters, is a God of order, is he not? It shouldn't be a surprise to us that God orders men. You even see an order in the persons of the Godhead. Clint Arnold says, Hupotasso is widely used for the proper social ordering of people as, for example, warriors giving their allegiance to their commander which is exactly what we have in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 24, when Solomon is made king, and the text reads in verse 24, all the officials, the mighty men, and all the sons of King David pledged allegiance, that is, hupotasso, they placed themselves under King Solomon. The officials and the mighty men ordered themselves under King Solomon's leadership. They submitted to him. But that is not always the case among men is it? How often do men rebel against God's created order? Boy, this is so potent in today's affairs. When God has made people, male and female, and people won't even order themselves under God's giving to them their own gender. Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. English Puritan pastor Thomas Shepard was given the name Thomas because his dad, William Shepard, said this, quote, that Thomas would hardly believe, as a doubting Thomas, you could say, he would hardly believe that ever any such wickedness should be attempted by men against such a religious and good parliament. What wickedness of men 
was attempted against English Parliament on the same day Thomas Shepard was born in November 5th of 1605 that would cause his dad to name him Thomas in reference to the Doubting Thomas. Here's what happened. A small group of unsubmissive English Catholics attempted to blow up the Protestant and mostly Calvinistic English Parliament. 36 barrels of gunpowder sat in the basement of the House of Lords in England, which would have blown the House of Lords to smithereens. The conspirators were found, arrested, tried, and hanged for their rebellion and insubordination. They didn't get orange jumpsuits. There was no television and soccer after lunch while awaiting their appeal at Guantanamo Bay. They received death for their failed submission to government authority. What makes submission so important? What makes submission so important? What makes submission so difficult? The answer to both of these questions is exactly the same. What makes it important and what makes it difficult is exactly the same. The answer is this. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the result of a perfect creator making a perfect creation. We are a perfect creation. We are perfect creatures from our perfect creator. And we've been horribly corrupted by failed submission to his authority and lordship over us in our rebellion and sin. Going all the way back to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. God made us in his image and likeness, and as a direct result, God has expectations of our behavior for our good and for his glory because he alone owns and knows all righteousness. And this seems to be the greatest problem for people to understand. I would not want you to leave here without understanding this today. God made everyone. He has expectations of everyone every day. That includes you. Easy expectations of righteousness for your good. And every day, everyone, every one of you fails repeatedly to accomplish God's righteous, easy expectations. Christ said his burden is light and his yoke is easy. As creator, God alone has ultimate authority over all of the realm of mankind over all of the heavenly realm, God is creator and has the total of authority. Romans 13.1 tells us, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, for God's glory and for righteousness. As God's Son, it is, not, it is no surprise to us that the Bible says repeatedly, and especially in 1 Corinthians 15:27, that God has put all things in subjection, that is, hupotasso, under Jesus' feet. Subjection is recognition of authority. And so we must be those who recognize that Jesus is the creator. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He himself says so, as recorded in Matthew 28, verse 18, where he said, before he departed, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All the human authority that we will ever encounter on this earth in our lives is delegated authority given by Jesus Christ to whom he wills. Please note, 
Authority that is delegated is only ever delegated from Jesus Christ for the explicit purpose of righteousness. That's so important for you to understand and retain as you think on the last two years. Jesus gave authority to Paul and Peter and the other apostles to write Scripture with the expectation that all believers and all mankind would submit to the authority of the Word of God. You're in 1 Peter chapter 2. What does Peter tell us about submission in chapter 2, verse 13? What does Peter tell us about Jesus' expectations of us regarding submission? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, You, Christian, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. And what I would hope that you see in this verse is how submission is tied together with authority, which is tied together with righteousness. You can't untie those three. Authority, submission, and righteousness. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. In chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Peter does, You younger men, likewise be subject, hupotasso, to your elders. Submit yourself underneath your elders. For those who are counting, Paul identifies here in his text four authorities to whom submission is due. Government, masters, husbands, elders. Paul would add a a fifth authority, parents. And I would remind you the source of their authority by asking the question, who gave authority over you to government, masters, husbands, elders, and parents? Jesus Christ gave all this authority out. Because this was his and the Father's plan, brothers and sisters, from eternity past, to show us our helplessness, to show us how needy and dependent we are. God planned to delegate authority over us in several human institutions with full expectation that these human institutions will do righteousness that has been parted out to them, delegated to them by Jesus Christ himself, all authorities will give an account for their failure to do righteousness. And someone might say, well, why did God want to have so many authorities for us? Why not just give us one authority? You only have to look back to Israel. God was their authority. What did they want? They wanted a man, and then they were divided out. And many men ruled over the top of them. Why did God want many human authorities for us? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is for our protection. It's for our protection. How often do human institutions do the righteousness of Christ that is expected? Multiple human institutions, each taking a portion of overlapping authority, creates the best protection available to mankind in this sin-sick world as all men are held accountable then to the righteous standard of Christ because their authority is overlapping 
and delegated authority. God designed multiple authorities intentionally for our good. Submission to one authority does not happen in isolation from all other delegated authority. This is a great blessing to us. If one human institution fails to do righteousness, there is another human institution nearby that we can appeal to for righteousness. Does that sound familiar to you at all? When government demands masks, social distancing, and no singing in the churches, where do the people of God appeal for the sake of righteousness? The people of God appealed to the elders, and the elders looked to the one true authority of the church, who is Jesus Christ, and found submission under him to be preferable to government. Yes, brothers and sisters, you are to submit. Yes, you are to endure unreasonable masters, and yes, you are to re report abusive and cruel authorities to righteous authorities that Christ's righteousness might be made known in this sin-sick earth. Why, why should we do that? Why should we appeal to righteousness? Because Jesus delegated authority for the purpose of righteousness and ultimately for is ultimately for confrontation between human institutions and the church. I want to say this again to you. Why report? Why appeal? Jesus delegated authority is for the purpose of righteousness and ultimately for confrontation between all human institutions and the church. All human institutions must run up against the gospel. All human institutions must run up against the scripture. All human institutions must run into truth and the truth of Jesus Christ sacrificed for sinners. Jesus picked this fight. I didn't pick this fight. Jesus picked this fight. Shall the slave being beaten with chains appeal to the church for rescue? Shall the woman caught up in sex trafficking escape and find refuge in the church? Shall the child made to sleep in a dog kennel in the garage appeal to the police? Shall the wife being beaten by her husband appeal to the police and have him arrested? Shall any and all who suffer in unrighteousness appeal for righteous treatment? They shall and they must. If you are a physically abused wife or child here today, righteousness for you is found in appealing for help from the police and from the church and submitting to their God-given authority, which must, what did Peter say in chapter 2, verse 13? What, did they, what must they do? Punish the evildoers and praise those who do right. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Submission to authority is God's eternal expectation of us because submission for us creatures is the righteousness of God. Enduring unreasonable authorities is the righteousness of God. Appealing to righteous authority is the righteousness of God. It really comes down to an issue of timing. What needs to happen today? What needs to happen right now? Do I need to be gracious and endure unreasonable treatment? Or is this treatment so unrighteous it deserves a righteous appeal? It comes down to an issue of timing. And that comes down to our understanding of submitting to the sovereignty and providence of the God who saves. You know, before letting Bufa go, the Laos police officers asked Bufa this question. They said to her, or they, they, they made her promise that she would not teach from her materials anymore. Is that a righteous or unrighteous request, brothers and sisters? It's an un, entirely unrighteous request. 
So how must Bufa respond to that request? How did she respond? Well, cunningly, Bufa responded by saying, you took all the materials already, and so there's no point to promise you if I'll ever teach again. And then she went right back to teaching the children about Jesus Christ. She did not submit to the unrighteous request of the Laos police officers. Understand this about submission. God has appointed several authorities to whom you must submit. All authority over you must practice righteousness. All authority will fail at righteousness. Did you get that? All authority will fail at righteousness. When authorities fail at righteousness, you are called to endure. And you are called to appeal to righteous authorities who will guide you in paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake. Where did you come when masks were happening all over the city? Where did you run to for refuge and a mask-free place to gather? You ran to the church. This is exactly what we did for the last two years. How many people appealed to their pastor for a religious exemption from getting vaccinated? How many churches and pastors were threatened with jail for gathering the body of Christ together in person for worship? To understand God's plan for authority and submission, you must do as Jesus told you in Matthew 6, when he says to you, Christian, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things of life will be added unto you. Are you, brothers and sisters, sensitive to the righteousness of God? If so, you will do submission, you will do endurance, and when, when necessary, you will do appeal. Even if that appeal is simply the appeal to God in prayer for the end of the trial of unrighteousness that you're suffering under. I sure hope this creates clarity for you on the understanding of submission to authority. But it might not give you clarity on our text in Ephesians 5.21. What does Paul mean in Ephesians 5.21 by saying, submit to one another? Clint Arnold says this, Paul subverts the normal usage of the term to convey the idea that all believers should defer to one another in the life of the Christian community. Defer to one another. Multiple authorities. Authority, 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 authority. Submit to one another. It makes me think of a cardboard box. You've got four corners that you're trying to suppress and get down all in harmony. And if you do it rightly, you don't bend any of the corners, but we do it fast, don't we? And you just take three panels and fold them down and take the last one and shove it in. Paul doesn't want bended corners in the church. He wants mutual submission. Which brings us to the second point in your notes. If you are God's called, elect, chosen children of light, this is Paul's eternal expectation. Your submission to authority, and perhaps more importantly, your submission to one another in the church. We see this in the second of three aspects of submission. The second of three aspects of submission. Number two in your notes, the present application of submission. Let's look at the present application of submission. I still have you in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. And before we read the second half of that text, let me remind you of what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says. Very simply, Paul said in Ephesians 5, 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Be subject to one another, to one another. Now, this is not regular submission. 
This is highly irregular submission that he's asking in chapter 5, verse 21. Paul is commanding mutual submission among all those who claim Christ in the church. So how do you arrive at mutual submission? Well, Peter has the answer for us in 1 Peter 5, 5, saying, after commanding young men to submit to their elders, he says this in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, and all of y'all, that's y'all, right? All of y'all, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now you've got to appreciate Peter's word picture here and the promise of God's grace to the humble. What is the word picture here in 1 Peter 5, 5? The clothing of submission is called humility. You just think of a robe pulled over, a, a robe of humility. Peter says, wrap yourselves in the robes of humility. Paul shares exactly the same thought about humility in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Very high Christology passage, and he says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We've been called into the church. By the grace of God, you've been called into the church. You have a family of people to, to worship and love God with here in the church. You've been called into fellowship with God's saints who are not seeking their own interests first, but in all humility. They walk in the front door of this church day after day, week by week, seeking not their own interests, but seeking first the interests of one another. This is a glorious place to be. You don't get that when you walk into your employer out on town. You don't get that. One another here is the same Greek word as in Ephesians 5, 21. The Greek word is all alone, all alone, which is a funny-sounding Greek word because it means exactly the opposite of what it sounds like, all alone. It means one another, each other, and is a term of endearment aimed at believers inside of the church. The New Testament is filled with over 40 one another commands both positive and negative. The, the, the premier one, the supreme command, comes from Christ on the night of glory. We read from John's gospel in John 13, 34, and 35, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples on the night of glory, he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you over these last three years, that you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 6, verse 2, that we are to be bearing one another's burdens and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. James says in James 5, 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. He says, James does in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter 4, verse 8, where Peter rolls out three rapid-fire one-anothers because he has right and good expectations of God's elect children when they are humble and spirit-filled, saying in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. As each one has need, receive 
as each one has received a special gift, that is, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And so we see in this one text, love, hospitality, service. Collectively, we've seen just in the text that we've looked at, in addition to love, service, and hospitality, confession, prayer, and the bearing of one another's burdens. Brothers and sisters, these one another's, this is biblical Christianity. This is the picture of mutual submission. This, for me, describes the great joy of worship and fellowship and ministry among you at Community Bible Church. This is you. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Now you might ask, what does mutual submission look like practically in Jesus' church? Well, if you're prepared for me to burden some of your consciences, I'll tell you, consider with me membership in the local church. Let's look at this, mutual submission in the form of membership in a local church. At Community Bible Church, we practice membership because membership is biblical. I will say this to you, membership affords to the righteousness of God. Now somebody's going to say, Oliver, how do you know membership affords to the righteousness of God? Membership as a word is not even in the Bible. Yeah, well, neither is Trinity, but you believe in that, don't you? If that's your thought, how is membership the righteousness of God? I appreciate that thought. I want to give time for that thought. I'm happy to provide an answer for that thought. I've asked you to turn to Hebrews 13, 17. The author of Hebrews 13, 17 commands all believers in the text. And I would ask you to pay special attention to this command. The author of Hebrews says, You, Christian, obey your leaders and hupotasso, submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The text demands an answer from you, brothers and sisters. Who are your leaders? If you claim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then answer the text. Who are your leaders? Now, don't lie to yourself and say, I listen to John MacArthur on the internet, he's my pastor. You can't say that. That's not true. Grace Community Church values membership just like we do. Pastor John is only your shepherd if you are a member of Grace Community Church. And even at that, he's got dozens of shepherds that are under shepherds with him that would probably be your local pastor at Grace Community Church. And even still, this is only if you live near the church and you can attend the church in person. Because the call of the pastor, the call of the elder, the call of the shepherd is life-on-life ministry where I can keep watch over your soul, is what the text says. How can the pastor do this without knowing who you are and being near you in your walk with Christ? It really makes me think about what's happening in our world and broader evangelicalism. How many churches have you been to that don't practice membership? Do you ever wonder why? Might make the pastor's job a little easier. Revolving door, people coming in and coming out, no commitment, kind of like the shack up sexualism of our society today. Shouldn't the church have more than that, though? Shouldn't we expect more? I believe the text of Scripture absolutely affirms it. We should. 
We should expect more. When will you come forward yourself in submission to the Community Bible Church elders and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and identify yourself as belonging to this, belonging, belonging to this body of Jesus Christ in North Spokane? Because the act of membership and walking through that process, as simple as it is, this is mutual submission. I would encourage you, go through our reasonable membership process like everybody else. Stand on the stage and make the ten affirmations, which are beautiful affirmations, make them to the body of believers here at CBC. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. You know, it's interesting about humanity. I know this about all of y'all. You're all members at Costco right up the street. You didn't have any problems signing up for that membership. You're probably all members on Amazon, too, so you can get your goods the next day, you know, next day mail. You pay your taxes to the IRS, you don't have a problem with that system. You submitted to the TSA when you got in their invasive screening process to fly out of town on your last vacation. Submission, submission, submission. Oh, but not in the church, not in the church. I've got to have my own way. That's not the way that you need to respond to this text. That's not the way to respond to Christ. That's not the way to respond to biblical, biblically qualified leadership in the church. How, I would ask you, how are we burdening you? How are we burdening you with two classes, two free lunches, and a four-page application which asks you questions like, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? How did God save you? Those are very friendly questions to ask, and we want to hear the answers. Let's move to the second point then. If we're going to look at a second consideration of mutual submission, it would be in the form of baptism. Baptism. You're in Matthew 28, verse, 19, verse 18 through 20, where Jesus said the following, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus expects a public confession of faith in him from all whom God has elected, called, and saved. So I would ask you the question this morning, brothers and sisters, where are you at with baptism? Are you saved? Have you counted the cost? Have you allowed Jesus' church to celebrate his redemption of you in his blood? through your obedience in baptism. Baptism, in one large sense, is not about you. Baptism is not about you. It's about Jesus' work in you. Jesus' desire is that you use your mouth to testify of the great love of the Father who graced you with salvation and redeemed you from the fires of hell in the blood of his Son. That's what baptism is all about and a beautiful thing to be testified to. Have you been obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized? Mutual submission demands that we all play ball by the same rules for the same reasons and get baptized in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in his name. Recently, I've been approached by several individuals about baptism. These requests have led to the elders at CBC to formalize our baptism, you could say, practices, I guess would be one way to say that. Because baptism is submission to Jesus for your obedience 
which must be a public display for the members of the local church to share and rejoice in what Jesus has done for you and to hold you accountable to the confession that you make over the course of your life. Baptism is an external expression of an internal reality meant to magnify the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of our members at CBC have been obedient in baptism. So the burden of obedience is, is one that falls today on the adult children of members in the room in addition to our regular attenders. If you are a regular attender or an adult child member, uh, an adult child of a member of ours in our congregation, and you feel this burden to be baptized, please come and see me. I have a book for you to read and a questionnaire, one-page questionnaire for you to answer. We won't baptize visitors at CBC because baptism is connected to membership in a local church. It's about disciple-making. There was a time I was working for Bill Shannon at Grace Community Church, and I was the pastor of the day. I was on call. And I got called downstairs to the front office, and it just so happened that there was a man there that the uh, secretary had told me needed a conversation with me. And he said, I'm here to get baptized. And I said, oh boy, do we have a conversation to have. And he was really frustrated that Grace Community Church is not a place for destination baptisms. It's, it wasn't the case that Pastor John MacArthur is ready to walk out of his office and be so happy to baptize you and then send you off to your local congregation. It's not the case at all. It really strips baptism of its aim, intention, function, glory, and joy for the church. We won't baptize those who haven't lived long enough to count the cost to follow Christ. If you baptize someone who hasn't lived long enough to count the cost of Christ, you may give them a false sense of hope in a salvation that might be for them pleasing to mommy and daddy that really isn't a salvation that lasts. We won't baptize young children because they have need to put in years of patience, faithfulness, and self-control. Because, brothers and sisters, there's nothing salvific about the waters of baptism. You know, it would be really awkward for the parents of a young child to demand their child be baptized against the wishes of the elders. It would also be really awkward for parents to suggest that not baptizing their child will squash their little faith. Baptism does not stir any believer on to stronger faith. Obedience stirs us on to stronger faith. Even obedience to be patient and wait as the elders ask you to count the cost of baptism and read a book and fill out a questionnaire. Even that type of obedience. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Submission to Jesus is submission to his elders. It is submission to his church on issues such as membership and baptism, among many others, in the fear of Christ who appointed elders in the church. Which brings us to number three in your notes, the timeless motivation for submission. The third of three aspects of submission, number three in your notes, the timeless motivation for submission. You need to be properly motivated to submission to men because men will fail. And so I want to properly offer motivation as Paul properly offers motivation for your submission because you know this men will fail. You know, it's for this very reason when we think about men failing and my own self being a failure, 
It, it, it is for this reason that I love to preach on the sovereignty of God. I love to preach the sovereignty of God because I know this. Though I fail, he is able, even through my failures, to build up Jesus' church to his glory. Puritan pastor Thomas Shepard knew all about the sovereignty of God and the failures of men, as seen in his own conversion. Thomas Shepard says this. He was 18 years old while at Emmanuel College in Cambridge, England, and he said, I drank so much one day that I was dead drunk on a Saturday night. Thomas Shepard says, I knew not where I was until late on the Sabbath. In shame and confusion, I went out into the fields and there spent that Sabbath lying hid in the cornfields where the Lord, who might justly have cut me off in the midst of my sin, did meet me with much sadness of heart and troubled my soul for this and for others my sins, which then I had cause and leisure to think of. For eight months, Thomas Shepard wrestled with God after his cornfield sobriety experiment until he was truly saved. Thomas said, Walking in the fields, the Lord dropped this meditation into me. Be not discouraged. Therefore, because thou art vile, but make the double use of the knowledge of your vileness. Number one, loathe yourself all the more. And number two, feel a greater need and put a greater price upon Jesus Christ, who only can redeem thee from all of thy sins. Here, brothers and sisters, is motivation for our submission. Feeling a greater price upon the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who only can redeem us from our sins, even prizing Jesus, prizing him, putting a price on him to the point of fearing him. We see this next in the text as Paul concludes his commands for submission with our greatest motivation for submission, saying in Ephesians 5.21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now you know this Greek word fear very well. It's the Greek word phobos, which shows up as a suffix in the word arachnophobia, which is fear of spiders, claustrophobia, which is fear of enclosed rooms, and anybody know what this one is? Is elevatophobia. You've got fear of elevators. The Oxford Language Dictionary says that fear is, quote, an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Now, when I read that definition, I understand if you recoil in horror at the thought that somebody somewhere somehow thinks something about Jesus could be threatening or dangerous or even cause us emotional discomfort or pain. But let me ask you the question. Is Jesus to be feared because he's dangerous? Yes, he is. The Apostle John records Jesus' own words to the church in Pergamum in Revelation 2.12 saying, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, verse 14, I have a few things against you. Verse 15, You also have some who in the same way hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Yes, Jesus is dangerous and to be feared. On that day, the day of his second coming to destroy all of his enemies on earth, John records in Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Certainly we should have fear because Jesus is a warrior king with a sharp, powerful sword of his mouth. And this is a great motivation for our submission to one another. For sure it is. However, is this the fear Paul is thinking about in Ephesians 5.21? Is there another way to understand phobos, fear, the fear of Christ in this text? Yes, there is. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 19. 2 Chronicles 19. Fear of Jesus is right only because he is a war... Not only because he's a warrior king with a powerful sword. Fear of Jesus is right because fear is reverence. Fear is honor, and fear is respect for our Creator. If I were to take you up on the top of this roof without a harness to paint that white steeple up there that's needing repair, would being on that steep-pitched sheet metal roof above our heads right now put a sense of fear into you? Of course it would. And at that moment, fear is not your enemy. Fear is your friend. Pastor Oliver, how did I ever let you get me into this? (laughs) You would have reverence and respect for the height of this building and the slick sheet metal roof that's over your head right now. And so too with Jesus, we need to have reverence, awe, and respect for our King, who is not only the conquering Lion of Judah, but also the slain Lamb of God who died for our sins. Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived, speaks, out, speaks of respect and reverence for the Lord, saying in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus, as well, knows our need of respect and reverence, saying in Matthew 10.28, listen closely, Matthew 10.28 says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, fear him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, you've turned in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 19. I want you to look at verse 6. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 6. This is where King Jehoshaphat of Judah is appointing judges and has this admonition, even a warning for the men who will be judges in Judea, saying to them in chapter 19, verse 6, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you when you render judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. Are you seeing the text? Look at it again with me. For the Lord our God, you do this as judges, you do this. Fear the Lord. The Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. I'm not sure what's going on in your mind right now as I just presented this text to you, but I want to pull you into my thought this week as I read this text. It made me think of the Senate confirmation hearings that are happening right now in our country. President Joe Biden has made an appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson a woman who has absolutely no fear of God before her eyes. Her appointment to the Supreme Court is bound and fixed up in the height of partiality, as President Joe Biden told us before the nomination that it would be. 
She accepted President Biden's appointment to serve as our country's Supreme Court justice based not on merit, but primarily because of her skin color and her gender. Worse still, her policies represent the height of unrighteousness. From her stance and understanding of abortion when life begins to her inability to explain what a woman is. This is your justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. Thank you. Katanji Brown Jackson will very likely become our next Supreme Court justice, which should cause all of us to fear the judgment of the Lord on this nation, which is overdue because of our unrighteousness, because of our partiality, and the absence of fear of Christ in our leaders. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, Acts 9, verse 31. Ernst Caseman is a Bible scholar and commentator, and he says this about our text in Ephesians 5, 21. Ernst Caseman says, the fear of the Lord is no empty rhetorical phrase in this text. That struck me when I read his quote. The fear of the Lord is no empty rhetorical phrase. As a result, brothers and sisters, we must be characterized by obedience to the word of Christ, seen in our submission to authorities, and our submission to one another in the church in the fear of Christ. Ray Stedman Bible commentator would have us know, to submit to someone does not mean that you are not equal to them. Submission does not mean inequality. Think of the Trinity. Think of the Godhead. Literally, it means to put yourself under, to arrange yourself under someone for a good and proper purpose. It is a totally voluntary action, Ray Stedman says. Submission to one another must be our life, in and out of the church, submitting John MacArthur says the spirit-centered life, on the other hand, is directly toward lowliness, toward subservience, and it lifts others up as it descends in humility. Submission requires humility. And I really appreciate the words of English Bible scholar John Phillips, who says this. And listen carefully to these words. I hope they're a blessing to you as they were to me. John Phillips, he says, The Holy Spirit will drill us in submission by the pressure of human relationships. As a military guy, I really appreciate that one. The Holy Spirit will drill us in submission by the pressure of human relationships. He goes further to say, it takes time, but eventually we learn that the path of submission is best. Yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit is the key to all our moral relationships, he says. He goes further saying, a basic principle of submission on every level is not asking whether we can trust the one we are submitting to, but whether we can trust God to work through the leader. And that last sentence right there, he says everything to me because he ties off submission to the sovereignty of God. Did you get that? Did you get it? A basic principle of submission on every level is not asking whether we can trust the one we are submitting to, but whether we can trust God to work through the leader. Submission tests both our understanding of sovereignty and our practice of sovereignty. And I just love that thought, the idea of the practice of sovereignty. Those words don't even fit together, if you know what I'm saying. We understand sovereignty, but do you practice sovereignty? How do you practice sovereignty? Biblically, you practice it kupotasso. You practice it in submission. Do you know that God is able? And do you move like God is able? Brothers and sisters, you must. Consider 
the church in the first century in Judea and Galilee and Samaria and how they had to fully trust in God's sovereign ability to sustain them. You see it there in Luke's words in Acts 9, verse 31, which says this, Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. That's the sovereignty of God. And that's submission. And that's authority. And it's all working together perfectly for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what my joy was in studying through this? is th- This is what I see at Community Bible Church. I see hearts of God's saints who are submissive to the Word of God. Saints who are actively filling themselves with the Holy Spirit. Saints who are full of the fear of the Lord. God's sovereignty, His grace and His blessing, causing our mutual submission and the power of the Spirit, that's what I see here as well. Brothers and sisters, our text today calls for us to submit to one another, which is an eternal expectation of God demanding present application among the saints of the church motivated by reverential fear of our Lord Jesus Christ. This demands our humility, our humility, the suppression of our pride. It demands appreciation for the people that God has sent to minister alongside of us. It demands motivation to be deep and abiding in respect and fear of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Submission is the bridge to relational redemption inside and outside the church, and those who walk wisely gladly cross the bridge of submission every day. And as we consider Ephesians 5.21 and our call to submission, allow me to close our time with three questions for you. Number one, do you value submission? Number one, do you value submission? Many people, many, many people attend churches all over the world today and, and every week and every month, and yet very, very few Christians practice membership in a local church. It's not entirely the fault of the flock because so few church leaders submit to the authority of God's word and care to practice biblical church membership. And therein lies the question. Who values what God's word says about submission and membership in the local church? To you. Do you value what God says? If so, you must know your leaders. You must know them. Hebrews 13, 17, know your leaders and submit to them, even as you mutually submit to all of your fellow members in the local church. The second question I would ask you, do you love the members of Community Bible Church? I do. Community Bible Church is full of joy, hope, peace, truth, grace, and overflowing and abounding in love. It's such a great joy to submit to one another in this church context when we all have expressed our love for Jesus Christ, our love for His Word. We stand on the same doctrine and we desire to serve Him in His church every day. Who are the people you mutually submit to in the fear of Christ? And if you don't have people that you mutually submit to in this world, I would ask you, why not join with these beautiful people at Community Bible Church? Third, I would say to you, do, not, or do you fear the Lord Jesus Christ? He is to be feared, and He is to be respected. This begins with your repentance for your sins, but it doesn't stop with repentance. Fear of Christ demands that you understand your calling onto His team and His plan to build a church. Are you helping Him build His church? If not, if you're a sideline Christian... If you're a North Idaho, tuck it off into the woods Christian, if you're a single brick church, that's awkward, right? Single brick church. If that's you, expect death. Expect death. It's not going to go well for you. If you don't fear him and don't want to tuck yourself into his church, watch out. 
I would implore you, if that's you, I would implore you to submit to Christ and to fear him this very moment and to fall into the fold that is his bride, the radiance and the brilliance of Christ, his church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it's a delight to spend this time with the brothers and sisters in Christ which you've given us from eternity past to bring glory and honor to your name. We pray that we've done that today. Father, I pray that these thoughts about submission to one another in the church would soak so well into us and create a fabric of a church that is so ripe with humility so as to be palpable, that those who enter could feel and experience and know the love of Christ through humble, servant-minded people. Lord, let that be the case for Community Bible Church today and all the days that we have on this earth as we serve you. In Christ's name, amen.